Welcome to the Center Ranch Church Weekly Podcast. We believe that faith comes by hearing the Word of God. Thanks so much for checking out the podcast. Here's this week's message. So this week, we're going to continue in Acts chapter 22. If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and open it. Acts chapter 22. We're going to be talking about healing like Pastor, Pastor Jonathan mentioned. We'll work our way through this chapter. We'll read a majority of it and then kind of land on focusing on healing. And there's already been people healed this morning. And so your faith can be rising as we go through God's word. If you need a touch in your body, you want, you know, someone in your family, a loved one, a friend needs a touch. Maybe you just want to gain insight on how do I keep my healing or walk in divine health. We're going to be talking about some keys of how to see that play out in your, in your life as we work our way through this chapter. Acts chapter 22, just to give you a little background or to get you up to speed We didn't read all of Acts chapter 21 last week, but Paul arrives in Jerusalem where he's been heading for a couple of chapters. And just like the Holy Spirit predicted, he gets arrested. He spends some time in Jerusalem. He goes to the temple one day. Someone spots him and recognizes him, calls him out, a riot forms. People saw Paul as a threat to the Jewish faith because he's he's teaching Jesus. So they were, they were violent against him. There's a mob mentality. They call the Roman soldiers to come in. Roman soldiers get him. They're taking him from the temple to the, the Roman fortress. I'll back up and read a couple of verses from Acts chapter 21, verse 35. It says, as Paul reached the stairs uh, of the Roman fortress, it says, the mob grew so violent, the soldiers had to lift him to their soldiers to protect him. And the crowd followed behind, shouting, kill him, kill him. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation, and I hope not. That's an unpleasant, I'm sure, situation to be in when you're surrounded by a crowd of people that are chanting in unison, kill him, kill him. Paul's in a a bad situation here, and he gets gets to the, the stairs of the Roman fortress, and he asks the Roman soldiers, can I address the people? And they let him. He motions with his hands. He motions for them to, to quiet down so he can speak to them, and that's where we pick things up. In Acts chapter 22, he's beginning to address this very, very angry crowd. Verse one, it says, brothers and esteemed fathers, Paul said, listen to me as I offer my defense. When they heard him speaking in their own language, the silence was even greater. Then Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, and I was brought up and educated here in Jerusalem under Gamaliel. As his student, I was carefully trained in our Jewish laws and customs. I became very zealous to honor God in everything I did, just like all of you today. Paul's given them a little background information. I'm Jewish too. I was very passionate and zealous towards the things of God, just like you. He tells how he trained under a Pharisee named Gamaliel, who we've, we've read about before in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 5, one of the times that they first arrested the apostles. They put them out in the Jewish council. They're talking together. They said, what what should we do with these people? They're trying to decide how to handle this new movement, this Christian movement. And there was a Pharisee named Gamaliel who said, I think we should leave them alone. My advice is leave these men alone because if this isn't of God, it'll just fizzle out. It'll become nothing. We don't have to worry about it. But if it is of God, what we're going to find is that we are fighting against God himself. So that that guy that said that in Acts chapter 5, that's the guy Paul says, I I trained under him. I was his student. 
Verse four says, and I persecuted the followers of the way. The way is Christianity, following Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. I love that name for the church, for Christianity, that persecuted the way, followers of the way, hounding some of them to death, arresting both men and women and throwing them in prison. The high priests and the whole council of elders can testify that this is so. For I received letters from them to our Jewish brothers in Damascus, authorizing me to bring the followers of the way from there to Jerusalem in chains to be punished. As I was on the road approaching Damascus about noon, a very bright light from heaven suddenly shone down around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord, I asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the Nazarene, the one who you are persecuting. So Paul is continuing to tell this mob his story, tells him how he was trained, tells him how he's on his way to to Damascus to bring more followers of the way, put them in chains, bring them to prison, punish them in Jerusalem. He's recounting the story that we read in Acts chapter 9 of this amazing encounter that he has with Jesus. As he's approaching Damascus, a bright light shines. It knocks him to the ground. He hears a voice saying, Saul, Saul, which was his name before he became Paul. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul's response is what? Paul asks, who are you? Who are you? When you persecute a lot of people and someone says, why are you persecuting me? You have to ask them to narrow it down. Paul says, you've got to be more specific. I'm persecuting all kinds of people. I'm here to persecute more people. So if you're asking me, why are you persecuting you? You're going to have to be more specific. Who are you? And Jesus responds, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Nazarene, who you are persecuting. Jesus Jesus, in this encounter with Paul, gives us some really important insight into the way that he looks at you and the way that he looks at me, the way he looks at us as the body of Christ. Jesus doesn't make a distinction between himself and the church. Jesus doesn't make a distinction between you and him. When the church was being persecuted, Jesus took it personally. Jesus saw it as it happening to to himself. That's his perspective. Who are you, Lord? Well, he responds, I'm, I'm Jesus. I'm the one that you are persecuting. This would be an opportunity for him to clear it up, to offer an explanation. Well, I, I'm Jesus in the way that you're harassing are, are my servants. You know, I'm Jesus and then my followers, like they're, they're the ones trying to become like me. Jesus didn't make any distinction. And this is really important. I know it's simple. Maybe, maybe this teaching is new to you and this is going to be something that's important for you to grasp. Those of us who've heard this before, we, we think we get it, we probably don't get it the way that we need to get it, that we see it like Jesus. When we talk about identifying with Jesus, being made one with Jesus, sometimes we only see it in the realm of metaphor, analogy. It's kind of like we've been made one with Jesus. But the way that Jesus presents it is... my people, me, I mean, one of the, what's the difference between the two? And it's an important perspective to have. If after service, if we were hanging out, and you decided to hit my wife, which I apologize again for this analogy. You just, you said, you know, that woman needs smacked. And you walked over and you, you smacked her. And then I confronted you. I would probably say something like, hey, why'd you hit my wife? 
Now, let's say I didn't approach it like that. I've been reading a lot of passages about marriage and the covenant and how the two become one and we are one flesh in the, in the marriage covenant. I'm, I'm really like hyped up on that. And so I approach you and I said, hey, why did you hit me? Well, you might respond like, like Paul and say, what, what, are you, what are you talking about? I, I didn't hit you. You're gonna have to, I don't, I don't know what you, you mean. Well, then after that, I would probably say, okay, well, when you hit Beth, She's my wife, and you know the Bible says that the two shall become one. So when you hear her, it's kind of like you were hitting me, and I would offer, I would offer some kind of explanation to clear it up, right? With Jesus, when he, Paul says, who are you? Who are you, Lord? Jesus doesn't offer an explanation to kind of break it down and say, well, I, you know, I said, why are you persecuting me? But technically, you haven't persecuted me. Jesus doesn't see it like that. He offers no explanation because in his heart, in his mind, from his perspective, there is no explanation. He says, I'm, I'm Jesus. I am the one that you are persecuting. My people meet. There is no distinction between the two. Now, this is so important for us to take Jesus' perspective on it for a number of reasons. A couple of them we'll talk about. In Amos chapter three, verse three, it says, how can two walk together unless they be agreed? Anyone want to walk with Jesus? If you do, that means that we need to agree with his perspective and get on board with the way he sees things. So it's not Jesus far off out there and we're just, you know, kind of his servants here on earth. Jesus sees us as one in the same, that we are the people of God. We've been made one with him. And if we want to walk together with Jesus, we've got to agree with the way that he sees things. We need to renew our minds to this reality. And I want to give you a few passages of scripture that back this up. I could give you more, but for the sake of time, I'll give you a few. I encourage you to write them down, meditate on them, get them in your heart and renew your mind. First Corinthians chapter six, verse 17, it says, but he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. He who is joined to the Lord is how many spirits? Not still two spirits, become one spirit. When you accepted Jesus, Part of becoming a new creature, a new creation, old things passed away. Part of that experience was you became one with Jesus. He who is joined to the Lord isn't just now a religious follower, uh, uh, kind of a member of the group. No, you become one spirit. That's what the Bible says. He who is joined with the Lord is one spirit with him. First John chapter five, verse 12 says, he who has the son has life. If I have, if I've accepted Jesus, I have the son and with the son, I also have life. First Corinthians chapter eight, verse 12. But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. That if I sin against you, I'm not just sinning against you. Why? Because you've been made one with him. So if I sin against you, I'm actually sinning against Jesus himself. That's the way Jesus sees it. So that needs to be the way that we see it and understand it. Colossians chapter one, verse 24. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. There's a mystery that's now revealed that he's talking about. To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. What is the mystery of the gospel? The mystery of the gospel is this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Well, now, what is it about that mystery? 
It's a mystery that God doesn't want to remain a mystery. Amen? It's a mystery that God wants to make known. It's a mystery that God wants to be revealed. That means you can see it. It's been made manifest. What, what's the mystery again? Christ in you, the hope of glory. That means if you've accepted Jesus, where's Christ? Christ in you, his spirit, that you've been made one with Jesus. That Christ in you, he wants it revealed. He wants it made manifest. He wants it to be obvious. Christ is in you. So it's a mistake when we put distance between us and Jesus that we aren't really one. I know we kind of are his body, but just kind of uh, metaphorically speaking. No, it is a reality. You've been made one with Jesus. And anytime we put distance out of religious thinking, false humility, whatever it is, what we're doing is we're taking something God wants revealed and we're trying to move it back into the mysterious realm. God wants it obvious. Christ in me, Christ in you, the hope of glory, that you have the mind of Christ. You have the spirit of Christ. You have the strength of Christ. You have the mind of Christ. You have the authority of Christ within you, residing in you, your attempt of the spirit of Jesus. He wants that revealed. That's the mystery of the gospel. Christ is in you. Christ is in you. Ephesians chapter 30. I'm sorry, Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 30. It says, for we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. This is basic Christianity, but sometimes we know it so well that we don't really grasp the, the essential reality of it, that we are the body of Christ. When we're told that we're the body of Christ, that's not the same kind of thinking as you talk about other groups being a body, like a student body. That's just all the kids that go to that school. That's the student body. It's, it's not just a way of phrasing we're a group of people that really think Jesus is great. We are the body of Jesus Christ, and it's a mistake to make a distinction between us and him. After service, it's going to be a violent after service, apparently. After services, we're hanging out talking, and I just... I, go insane for a minute, and I grab a pen out of one of the seat backs, and I stab you with it. I jam it in your arm or jam it in your hand. What, what would you do? You, you, you'd be in shock. You'd, be in, you'd scream. Be like, oh, this guy just stabbed me. You just stabbed me. What, what if I started trying to calm you down? Like, be, would you relax? You're so dramatic. And stab you. Stab the arm. Stab the hand, your abdomen, whatever, you know, whatever I was able to get at. It's, I didn't stab you. I stabbed that hand right there. Yeah, that, that's, that's me. You wouldn't make a distinction. If I stabbed anywhere on your body, you would take it personally. I have stabbed you, right? That's the way we've got to see it with, with being the body of Jesus Christ. The same life that's in Jesus is the life that's in you. The mystery of the gospel, Christ in you. In John chapter 15, Jesus talks about he is the vine. We are the branches. The, the same life that's in the vine flows in the branches. There's a distinction made between the two, but there's also a unity between a, the branch and the vines. Amen? That if, if you got the branch and the vine, it's one plant. There is, there's unity there. If you have a garden and you raise grapes, you have a prized grapevine. It's your, it's your pride and joy. You have the best grapes that come off of that thing, most delicious grape juice. And one morning you wake up and you're looking out your back window just to admire your beautiful grapevine, and you see me out there with a chainsaw cutting all the branches off it. Wait, hey, good morning. You say, what are you doing? You're killing my, my grapevine. Hey, again, you're so dramatic. What are you doing? I, I didn't touch the grapevine. I'm just trimming all these branches off. No, because they are one and the same, right? They, there is a unity there that sometimes when it comes to us and our relation to Jesus, out of trying to honor him, we actually reverse the mystery that he once revealed. What he said, his perspective, that we have been joined together with Jesus Christ. 
And it's got to move out of the, the metaphorical, out of just being an analogy, out of just being kind of a cool way to think about it, that it is a, it's the, the reality that we understand. I have been made one with Jesus Christ. His life, his power, his spirit resides on the inside of me. I'm seated with Christ in heavenly places. If you see me, you see Jesus, that that's how we've got to behave and act and think. When Jesus came, he, he said, if you've seen the fa- if you've seen me, you've seen the father. They, they were, we're that unified. And then he prayed that we would be unified the same way. Now, religious people got frustrated. They got upset about it. In fact, that's why, that's why they killed him. But he didn't back down from it because even though it upset people, it also empowered Jesus to do the things that he did. And Jesus said the same way the Father sent me, so I send you. That means he wants people that don't say Jesus is out there somewhere. It'd be great for you to meet him. No, if you've seen me, you've seen Jesus because I carry his likeness. And embracing that reality is what allows us to begin to step into it. If we keep it at a distance, we'll never actually walk as Jesus, which is what we're supposed to be. You know, Jesus is our example as you read through the scripture. And there's a lot of different people we can identify with and praise God, scripture is so rich. But ultimately, who is our example? Jesus is our example. And sometimes it's like it's so simple what we don't understand the purpose of an example. If I was doing, doing a, teaching you math, which you'd be in trouble right off the bat there, but if I was trying to teach you math and I gave you an example, the point of his example is do it like that. Our attitude sometimes when we acknowledge Christ as our example is that to hold ourselves below that standard instead of living at that standard and embracing that. That's what an example is. So we have stories of, of Peter being beckoned to walk on the water. It's, it's a great story, but he takes his eyes off of Jesus and looks at the wind and the waves and he starts to sink and Jesus comes over and lifts him out. And we, we identify with Peter and thank God there's times we can identify with him, but God doesn't want you always just being the person that's sinking under the wind and the waves. If you've been that person, Jesus wants to hold hold you up, lift you out of that, get you back on solid footing, raise you from where you are. But that's not the example. Jesus is the example. So he wants you to go beyond being the person that's sinking in the waves and be the kind of person that goes around lifting other people who are, who are sinking. But as long as we hold Jesus at a distinction and a distance that he doesn't want held at, we'll never be the people he wants us to be. You've been made one with Jesus. And I know people can take a teaching like this, twist it around, get all weird with it, and hopefully you understand that's not where I'm coming from. If, if you show up next week in a white robe and sandals, pulling a, a cross behind you, wearing a, a crown of thorns, then you, you didn't understand what I'm saying properly. That we've been joined together with Jesus, and we're supposed to be like Jesus. Why are you persecuting me, Jesus said. In Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, we're told that we are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. Co-heirs. That that means what belongs to one person belongs to the other person. Co-heirs. There's a a co-ownership. What's his is mine. What's mine is, is his. When I married Beth... Everything that I had became hers and everything she had became mine. We, we, we became one. Now, at the time, that wasn't a real win for her. I mean, she got access to a beat-up old late 80s model Toyota and a, and a box of CDs and an out-of-tune guitar. That's about all I had to bring to the, the equation. But it, she, it, it, was, it was hers because we had become one. Now, let's say that when we got married, I, I was doing very well, and I owned a nice home, and I had, I had vehicles, and, and let's say that she was homeless and had nothing, and then we get married. We, we are lawfully wed. Well, we've, we've become one, right? Well, it would be ridiculous for her 
to continue living under bridges or staying at the mission or something. Say, what are you doing here? Well, I'm I'm homeless. I'm hoping to save up for an apartment. No, not anymore you're not. You have a home because I have a home. We, We have a home. You see here walking around town from place to place. Why are you always walking places? Because I don't have a car. No, no, you do have a car because we've been joined together and what's mine is yours. And Jesus has that same perspective. It's not pleasing to him when we insist on living at a low level. His perspective is what you and him have been joined together And that's the way he wants you to see it. It doesn't honor him for you to create a distance that he doesn't want to be there. Amen? That we have been made one with Jesus Christ. That begins to affect really every area of your Christianity. It helps you to know what rightfully belongs to you because you're an heir. You've been linked together with Jesus Christ. His presence, his power, his life is active on the inside of you. The way that you interact with challenges, the way that you approach situations, it changes all of it when you understand, when you choose to see it from Jesus, Jesus' perspective. Where did we leave off? Verse 9. Acts 22, verse 9, says, The people saw me. Paul is, again, he's explaining to them the encounter he had, talking to these Jews outside the Roman fortress. The people with me saw the light but didn't understand the voice speaking to me. I asked, What should I do, Lord? And the Lord told me, Get up and go into Damascus, and there you will be told everything you are to do. I was blinded by the intense light and had to be led by the hand to Damascus by my companions. A man named Ananias lived there. He was a godly man, deeply devoted to the law, and well regarded by all of the Jews of Damascus. He came and stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, regain your sight. And that very moment I could see. Then he told me, the God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and hear him speak, for you are to be his witness, telling everyone what you have seen and heard. What are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized. Have your sins washed away by calling on the name of the Lord. After I returned to Jerusalem, I was praying in the temple and fell into a trance. I saw a vision of Jesus saying to me, hurry, leave Jerusalem for the people who won't For the people here won't accept your testimony about me. But Lord, I argued, they certainly know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you, and I was in complete agreement when your witness Stephen was killed. I stood by and kept the coats that they took off as they stoned him. But the Lord said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The crowd listened until Paul said that word. Then they all began to shout, away with such a fellow. He isn't fit to live. They yelled, threw off their coats, and tossed handfuls of dust in the air. So Paul's given them all of this background story, explaining his experience and what happened to him. And this, this violent mob is silent listening to him. They're, they're tuned in. He might be stretching them a little bit by talking about Jesus being the Messiah, but they're, they're going along with it. They're listening to him until he gets to this point. It says that the crowd listened until Paul said that word, until he said what word? Until he says that the Messiah, Jesus, told him to leave Jerusalem and go to the Gentiles. That, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. 
that what they couldn't accept, what pushed them over the edge, was this idea of God sending, sending the, good, the good news, salvation, to other people. They start to lose their minds. I mean, think about it. They're yelling. They're throwing handfuls of dust in the air, taking their jackets off. These, these people are like going berserk with, with fury. They're so angry at this. And we could take more time to talk about this. I won't take much time. I'll just hit on it very quickly. But it, it's easy to fall into a mindset of just me and what is best for me. And churches do it all the time. That they can become very ingrown and just think about us and no more. And the thought of going to people outside of the church becomes an irritant. And that's what you see operating. It's part of a a religious mindset or a religious spirit. It becomes very self-serving and self-focused. So if you ever find yourself in in a mindset that going outside of the church and pursuing people outside and not just doing what's always best for us, but for other people, let it be a red flag that you might be falling into this category of people. And you're better off to catch it early before you start throwing dust in the air and acting like a maniac, amen. The part of, part of the heart of Jesus is to leave the 99 and to go after the one. That, that, that's, that's where our heart has to be, to go after the lost, to bring people into the kingdom of God. We'll keep reading. Verse 24, the commander brought Paul inside and ordered him lashed with whips to make him confess his crime. He wanted to find out why the crowd had become so furious When they tied Paul down to lash him, Paul said to the officer standing there, is it legal for you to whip a Roman citizen who hasn't even been tried? When the officer heard this, he went to the commander and asked, what are you doing? This man is a Roman citizen. So the commander went over and asked Paul, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I certainly am, Paul replied. I am too, the commander muttered, and it cost me plenty. Paul answered, but I am a citizen by birth. The soldiers who were about to interrogate Paul quickly withdrew when they heard that he was a Roman citizen, and the commander was frightened because he had ordered him bound and whipped. They bring Paul into the fortress. It says that they're going to beat him with whips, plural, whips. Other translations say to scourge him or to flog him and try to get out of him. What what did you do to make people so angry with you? This... This is an intense Roman punishment. This isn't just uh, some of the beatings Paul has gone through before, not to make little of them. This isn't being beaten with rods. This is a specific form of punishment similar to what Jesus endured on his way to the cross. When they would take whips, they they flogged, scourged. The whips would have uh, hard pieces of metal or stone or things like that to inflict even more damage. That just the result of that was enough to kill people and sometimes did or to permanently cripple people just as a result of that beating. So that's what they've, they've prepared Paul. They've got him tied up. But as he's, as he's tied up and they're getting ready to start beating him, he says, is it lawful for you to beat a, a Roman citizen without being tried? Now, you can read that however you like. But I, I don't think Paul said that in a very calm, sweet voice. Uh, is it uh, technically allowed for you to? I, I don't think he said it like that. I think he was insisting on, on something being carried out. Hey, are you out of your mind? Do you think you have the right to do that to me? There's no way in the world that you're allowed to. He, he was insisting on something. So Paul stopped that beating from happening to him. How? Number one, he had rights. He had rights as a citizen, rights because of where he had been born. His citizenship gave him certain rights. Those rights on their own, although important, were not enough to spare him a beating. 
He had rights, but if he didn't know about those rights, how do you think it would have played out? He would, he would have been beaten. That might have been the end of Paul. Maybe it was one of those beatings that kills someone or permanently cripples him. So he had rights. That was good. It wasn't enough. He needed to know about the rights. He needed to be familiar with what his rights were at, because of his citizenship, because of how and where and when he'd been born. There were rights that belonged to him. It wasn't enough. He needed to know about it. Knowing about it wasn't enough. He needed to speak up and insist on those rights being played out in his life. He had to claim them. He couldn't be passive about it. Even if he was thinking about those rights, reciting them in his mind, he'd memorize the rights from the book of law or whatever he was, he was referring to. That wouldn't have been enough. He had to speak up and claim those rights. You know, as a child of God, if you know Jesus, you've been reborn into a new kingdom. You're a citizen of the kingdom of God, a citizen of, of heaven. By right of birth, there are some things that belong to you, but all too often, people don't even know what belongs to them. They don't know what God's word has to say as far as promises and provision and, and who you are and, and what things belong to you as a member of God's family. The Bible says, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Just because it belongs to you isn't enough for it to be realized in your life. Just because you have that right doesn't mean it's just going to happen. And then sometimes, even when people do know, they know what God's word says, they think because they have that right, it's gonna play out automatically in their life. Because I know God's a provider, because I know healing belongs to me, because whatever promise you're claiming, because I know this part of God's word, then that's the way it's going to go. We can see in this example from Paul that that's not enough. There's got to be a claiming of that right. Now, you can apply this to any, anywhere you want with the word of God, but for the next few minutes, I want to zero in on the subject of healing and apply it specifically, specifically to our health. Sometimes, even though people know God's word and its provision concerning healing, by his stripes we're healed. Healing is the children's bread. We can lay hands on the sick and they recover. They, they know that God has provided healing. That they don't insist on it and they're not firm enough in that conviction that when sickness comes, they feel a symptom, they get a, a sore throat, their, their feet start swelling up, uh, the doctor gives them a, a diagnosis, Wh whatever it happens to be, then they... They're more convinced of the symptoms in the natural than what God's word has to say. People believe in healing up until the point they get sick. And then, you know, I, I guess, I guess it didn't, I, guess it, I don't understand the way that I thought I understood. Paul, Paul's situation looked like he didn't have rights. And he had to know what he knew about his rights even more than the situation was dictating to him. Because when you, it's, they've said, we're going to beat you. They've already got him tied up. He's laying on the ground bound. There's soldiers around him with whips ready to start cracking those whips on his back and laying him open. It's a situation where you'd think, oh, maybe I don't have the rights that I thought I had. I thought, I thought they weren't allowed to be Romans, but uh, apparently they are. I mean, it sure looks like it. But he had to start speaking up and saying, no, absolutely not. I refuse to accept this. That, that's not appropriate for somebody who has my citizenship. That's not appropriate for someone who's been born the way that I've been born. And the same thing works when it comes to healing in our lives. That there's got to be an insistence on what belongs to us. Don't, don't just believe in healing until the point you get sick. That you've got such a, a conviction on the inside. You know, believing the word of God isn't just knowing about the 
word of God and thinking it's great. Believing the word of God isn't just committing it to memory. Believing the word of God is acting on the word of God. And part of acting on the word of God is insisting that it plays out in your life, that it leaves these pages. And now it's on display. Like Paul said, our lives are like a letter written to you, that it leaves just a a, a printed book. And now you can see it on display in my life and an insistence. I know what belongs to me. I've got to have it. I claim my rights as, as a citizen, as a child of God. I know what belongs to me because I've been joined to Jesus. That he sees whatever happened to those people Jesus saw as it happening to him. If that applies to beating, what about sickness? What about cancer? What about diabetes? That Jesus is passive about that? No, if it, it was inappropriate and Jesus doesn't want it affecting your body. Amen. When it, when it comes to healing in the body of Christ, there are three, this is generally speaking, three general views or mindsets people take towards healing. Now, I'm, I'm speaking very generally. One is that healing is no longer for today. They've accepted Jesus and they're familiar with scripture, but healing is a thing of the past. It was awesome when it happened. It would have been really cool to be there when that was still something God is, was doing, but it's not the case anymore. It kind of ended, started getting less and less through the life of the apostles. And it was just something God wanted to do just to kind of get the ball rolling, you know, just kind of announce the, the, you know, like a grand opening of the church and some people get healed, build some excitement. And then, and then it's just not something God's doing anymore. That's one mindset that some believers have. The healing is no longer for today, which is not a biblical viewpoint, by the way. You can't support that with scripture. Another mindset, maybe the most popular one, is to believe that God does still heal today. But it's kind of hit and miss. And it's sort of luck of the draw. It's like a, a lightning striking. that You've just got to be at the right place at the right time. Be one of the special people. Somehow become one of God's favorites or be around the right person in the right moment. Everything kind of aligns. And maybe you can be one of those few chosen neat stories that we hear about that happen different places, different parts of the world. And God still heals, but it's like, I mean, it's like a roll of the dice. You, it, don't count on it, right? And that's probably what most people, even those that say, yes, we believe that God heals, but they also know it's kind of like, you better, you better go ahead and jump to plan B pretty quick, which again is not a biblical view. A third viewpoint, and the one that I recommend, and the, the stance that we have as a church, is that God does heal today, and healing is part of redemption. That healing, if you've been redeemed, if you're a child of God, then healing belongs to you. It's, it's a part of the redemption package. It belongs to you because of the citizenship you have in the kingdom of heaven. Because you're a son, because you're a daughter, because you're a temple of the Holy Spirit, healing belongs to you. Again, just because it belongs to you doesn't mean it plays itself out. There's got to be an act of claiming, a refusal of what, because when your body's attacked, that's, that's not a time to lay down your rights. That's a time to cling to them and be more sure than ever before. If you're a child of God, you've been redeemed. You understand part of redemption is knowing that your sins have been forgiven, right? You can't be saved unless you understand that, that Jesus came as the son of God. He took our sin. The Bible said he became sin, died on the cross. He paid for it. He paid for our sins. God raised them from the dead. Sin has been dealt with. Sin has been destroyed. That's part of redemption. So if you're saved, you understand that. Another important thing to understand is where sickness and disease comes from. In the Garden of Eden, there was no sickness. There was no disease. 
Nobody had diabetes. Nobody had tuberculosis. Nobody had arthritis. That sickness and disease only came about as a result of the fall. And what, what caused the fall? Sin was the reason for the fall when Adam and Eve disobeyed God. So sickness and disease stem from the root, stem from the root of, of sin. So if Jesus came to deal with sin, even if he did, he wants people healthy and strong, but even if he didn't, if he came to deal with sin and sin alone, he couldn't help but also deal with sickness because sin is the root of sickness and disease. That by dealing with one, just as a byproduct, he has already dealt with, with the other. And so when we understand the redemption package and all that God has done for us in redemption, you know that he paid for your sins. I can, man, God can forgive me. I know that. You can also have that same kind of confidence that he carried sickness and, and disease. Again, it's just a by, even if you just, I know he destroyed the power of sin in my life. Just by that, he couldn't help but also deal with anything that stems out of sin by nature of destroying that. But let's say that in my yard, I've got dandelions and I happen to love them. I think they add a beautiful splash of color to, to the lawn. I love dandelions. I, I'm just the more the merrier. I just think they're, they're the most beautiful flower or weed or whatever they are. I love the dandelions, but you know what I really hate? I hate the roots of those things. And somehow I find a way to get below the surface. I know this is ridiculous, but if somehow I could get below the surface, love the dandelions, I hate the roots. And somehow I destroy all those roots. I sever all of them. Well, even if I love dandelions, I'm like a dandelion fan, then, then by, as a byproduct of what I've done to the root, I've simultaneously destroyed the dandelion itself, amen? So when Jesus destroyed sickness and disease, if you just understand that, then you also understand healing as, as a byproduct because the two are part and the same, that they came from the same place and they've been dealt with in the same redemption package. In 1 Peter 2, 24, it says, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we having died to sins might live for righteousness. What's he talking about? He's talking about sin and righteousness. He carried our sin, talking about Jesus, he bore our sins in his own body on that tree, that we having died to sin, dead to sin, that we can now live for righteousness. Notice the next thing he says. The very next line, he's quoting from Isaiah 53, by whose stripes we're healed. Wait, wait, well, hold on a second. You just totally shifted gears there, Peter. We're talking about being righteous. We're talking about sin being destroyed. That's, that's the focus. Why, why did you jump from that? And by his stripes we're healed. Because what, they, they were naturally connected. That one just naturally led to the other. Sin has been destroyed. We can now live to righteousness. How many know by his stripes we're healed? Peter was just flowing from one thing, one thing to the other. That just like Jesus became sin for your sin, so that you could become the righteousness of God. The Bible says he also became sickness itself so that you could be healthy and strong. And today, if you need healing in your body, it's available. It's, it, you've got to claim it. It's not enough for you to have that right. Even if you're aware of it, it doesn't naturally play itself out. And if up until this point, it hasn't played itself out and the enemy has used it, that to discourage you, I guess it isn't for you. No, you just need to claim that right. It belongs to you. It's yours by nature of your birth in this kingdom of God, that you are a recreated being, recreated in the image of Jesus. All things passed away, that you are now in the kingdom of heaven in the kingdom of God's dear son. And so if you need a touch in your body, you can receive it this morning. That one of the ways that we lose the power of Jesus, it's part of revealing the mystery, the mystery of the gospel, Christ, Christ in me, Christ in you. 
Part of the way that we can release that power, the Bible says, is by laying our hands on the sick, by anointing them with oil, by using the authority in our mouths to command sickness to go, to command people to be made well. That's something you can do. You can do for yourself. You can do for your family. You can do for your coworkers, people that you meet. You can lay hands on the sick and they recover. Sometimes we come together as a church. The Bible says we can call for leaders in the church to lay hands on the sick and anoint them with oil. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well again. No no jumping through hoops like we sometimes put ourselves through. If I want healing, how have I been doing? It it doesn't say that healing's acquired by any of those means, but the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. And if he has sinned, he'll be forgiven. Let, Let me read one more passage of scripture. And then we'll we'll pray. Isaiah chapter 53, what Peter was quoting from. I'm going to read it to you in Young's literal translation. So this is literal. This this is what it meant in the original Hebrew. Surely our sicknesses he has borne, and our pains he carried them. Your sicknesses, is talking about you, and talking about Jesus, and what he did for you. Your sickness, he's already carried it. He carried it. Your pains, he's already borne them. And we have esteemed him plagued, smitten of God, and afflicted. And he's pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. He's talking about how we're forgiven, right? Talking about he he paid the price for our sins, our, our iniquities. So it's all wrapped up in the same thing. The chastisement of our peace is on him. And by his bruise, there is healing to us. A lot of translations say, by his stripes, we are healed. Same word, bruise or or stripes. By what happened to his body provided healing. Not just identification. I, I too know what it's like to be unwell. No, so that you could be healed in your body. What he went through had a very specific purpose so that you could be strong and healthy in your body. And if you're a child of God, it, it is a right. It belongs to you. But being a right's not enough. You need to know about it. Now you know about it. If you didn't before, healing belongs to you. It's not the hit and miss situation that some people believe. It is yours by redemption right. Now you know. The third thing is you've got to claim it. Refuse it. Not, not a, a passive attitude but an insistence, what belongs to me. I refuse to accept sickness. I refuse to accept this pain in my body. I refuse to accept this dying. Absolutely not. I, just like Paul, I refuse to accept this beating. Knowing is not enough. There's got to be an insisting on that truth playing out in your life. And we're going to do that together here in just a moment. Well, that's this week's message. Thanks for joining us. To stay connected with us throughout the week, make sure you follow us on Instagram and Facebook. You can also watch previous week's services on our YouTube page.